From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show is Voices of Hope, True Stories of Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal. It's part of Carnegie Hall's Voices of Hope Festival, which examines the life-affirming power of music and the arts during times of crisis. On today's show, we feature true personal stories that all connect around the theme of music from writers Lynn Edelson, Julie Evans, and Leanne Soule. Yo-Yo Ma is closing out the season at Tanglewood with the Bach Project, and the lawns are packed with the $15 ticket holders. During the pandemic, I set out to find a photograph of John Coltrane my husband had seen in a shop window. Our anniversary was in three weeks, and I always give Tommy gifts that honor his music, because music saved his life. I'm making breakfast for my kids when my phone beeps with a calendar alert. Fourth grade spring concert, it reads. I put down the butter knife and glance at the clock. It's just after 8.30. If not for the pandemic, I would already be in school, setting up chairs and percussion equipment. And on today's Between the Lines segment, veteran journalist Jeremiah Horrigan ponders just how he's been able to make a living telling stories. I'm not a comedian. I'm a writer, a storyteller. But when it comes to telling a story, a joke, an anecdote, doesn't matter what, I can't do it. That's all coming up on Read 650. We begin today's show with Lynn Edelson. Lynn has been writing memoir for the past 10 years, and she's currently at work on a collection of short stories. Here she is reading Counterpoint. Here, author asks, pointing to an open space. Looks good, I say. Our husbands nod in agreement as they drop the bags of food and sand chairs to the grass. We set up our things, and even though the sun is in our eyes, we're happy to be finally sitting down. I place myself between Arthur and my husband and reach for the bag of chips. Yo-Yo Ma is closing out the season at Tanglewood with the Bach Project, and the lawns are packed with the $15 ticket holders. As the sun begins to set, the landscape darkens. Loud applause echoes as Yo-Yo walks out onto the empty stage, bows, and smiles at us all. He sits down on the lone chair that stands behind the cello. A hush falls over the crowd as his bow moves across the strings. I am entranced. Bach is my go-to guy, the one who fills me up when the days are longer and the nights are darker, when the quiet echoes within. The mathematics are seductive. The counterpoint melodies keep me spellbound. I reach for my husband's hand because only he knows how joyful I am feeling. It is not until the end of the fourth suite that Yo-Yo finally speaks. He thanks us for being there, for supporting this international project to heal political divisiveness, for bearing witness. Then he introduces the next suite. This one is especially meaningful for me, he tells us, when I'm feeling depressed or in need of renewal, this is the piece I go to for solace. So, this is dedicated 
to all of those who have experienced loss, the loss of health, of love, the loss of dignity. I am stunned by his words. He is speaking directly to my heart, the heart that is trying to wrap itself around my son who is struggling to find his way as he moves past the life he shared with the woman he loved. I am sitting in the dark thinking about my child, the one who hears all the words not spoken, the one who cannot yet envision a future without her by his side. I am no longer holding my husband's hand. I am trying to breathe into the night, holding on to the stars, holding on to a whisper of hope. Yo-Yo moves through the piece with tenderness and begins the final suite, but I can't keep up. I am still caught up in his words, in the gentle nod of his head, until the music finally stops and he speaks to us again. Thank you, thank you, he begins. And then he talks about Tanglewood and the impact it has had on the culture, and especially for the opportunities it provides young musical talent. And to that end, he says with a grin, we found someone who wrote a wonderful song at the age of 20. May I introduce to you Jimmy Taylor. And out walks James Taylor onto the stage. The crowd gasps and then erupts in applause and starts calling his name. He sits on a stool very close to Yo-Yo and they begin to play Sweet Baby James. The audience begins cheering as Taylor is singing until they finally settle into the music. And me? I am weeping. My hands are in my lap. My fists are tight and I am smiling as tears are streaming down my cheeks and all I can think about is magic. This moment, the joy of this surprise. I am sobbing silently into the darkness, even as everyone around me is laughing and singing along. And I am filled up with the love and the hope that perhaps, just perhaps, those magical moments are still out there for my son, that they will come upon him when he's not looking, when he has given up when he can no longer see the stars. Lynn Edelson has performed her work as part of the New York City Listen to Your Mother show, and she's made seven trips to the Reed 650 stage for our live events in New York City and Westchester County. She's the mother of two grown sons, and she lives in the Hudson Valley with her husband, Michael Principe, and their two dogs. Julie Evans is a licensed massage therapist, ordained deacon, and freelance writer who defines her life's mission as helping people recover their health, humor, or peace of mind. Recorded in a studio near her home in Woodstock, this is Julie Evans with Baptizing John Coltrane. During the pandemic, I set out to find a photograph of John Coltrane my husband had seen in a shop window. Our anniversary was in three weeks, and I always give Tommy gifts that honor his music, because music saved his life. At 14, he had picked up a clarinet and could play any song his mother hummed. Then he found the saxophone, and it didn't matter so much that he was a clumsy kid, bullied at school, or had a father who beat him. Music became his safe place. I found the photograph he'd seen, but it wasn't for sale, 
So I look online and find a photo of Coltrane as a young man holding onto his horn like it's a part of him, just like I've seen Tommy do a thousand times. The seller wants $250. The picture is out of focus, and I wish I could see it up close. I see a tab to contact the seller. I click on it, asking if I can come see the photo. He texts back his address, and off I go. My GPS takes me on a route I've never driven. I open the windows to let in the fresh spring air. Magnolia trees in full bloom, the sky so blue, and the clouds wispy like feathers. I turn the final corner onto a street, just as an old beat-up jeep careens around the corner, stopping right beside me. A tall black man stretches out his massive hand to shake mine and tips his head in the direction of the driveway, indicating I should follow him. He drives with his door open and foot hanging out. He's already striding up the porch stairs as I approach the house. I hurry to catch up, but he stops me. Wait! I only get a glimpse through the broken screen of a hallway crowded with every kind of thing. I back down the steps and stand next to a red hibiscus bush, wondering how a tropical plant survives in upstate New York. I used to live in Jamaica, where such plants were common, as was the seller's thick accent. I love your plant, I say, as he hands me the photograph. The black and white photo is behind filthy glass, inside a rusted metal frame. My eye is drawn to a blue ink spot on Coltrane's tweed jacket. I notice that, he says reassuringly. Just give me two hundred. My eyes move from the photograph to the man's faded blue flip-flops, the big toenail so long it curls around the toe. I raise my eyes, taking in the worn khaki pants, cut off above the ankle, his thin white cotton shirt, unbuttoned one too low. He slips his mask up from the tangle of his thick gray beard to cover his mouth. The wind stirs the blossoms on the hibiscus. I give him the two hundred dollars. He doesn't offer me a glass of water or use of the bathroom. We touch elbows, and I drive home. Early the next day, I rush to Frederica's framing studio. I hand her the photograph. She unscrews each tiny screw, then gently pries the rusted frame loose and lifts the murky glass from the photograph. As she does this, Coltrane's shoulders lift from the backing. His head moves from side to side like Stevie Wonder, and then his chest pushes upward as if he's taking a breath. I watch as John Coltrane comes to life, just like Tommy does, every time he plays. After ordering the frame, all we can do is wait. Tragically, the next day George Floyd is murdered. Frederica becomes absorbed with tending to John Coltrane's wounds. With a damp cloth, she dabs at a spot on the photograph, and surprised when it comes clean, she asks if I'm willing to let her submerge the whole thing in water, like a baptism. I say yes. Julie Evans's writing has appeared in the Woodstock Times, Healthy Hudson Valley, and elsewhere. And in 2019, Woodstock Arts published her memoir, Joy Road, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery. <laughs>
Leanne Soul is an award-winning writer and music teacher whose writing has appeared in many places, including Rappahannock Review, Mothers Always Write, and Hudson Valley Magazine. Leanne's contribution to our special Carnegie Hall Voices of Hope Festival event is Over the Rainbow. I'm making breakfast for my kids when my phone beeps with a calendar alert. Fourth grade spring concert, it reads... I put down the butter knife and glance at the clock. It's just after 8.30. If not for the pandemic, I would already be in school, setting up chairs and percussion equipment. As my students came in from the buses, I'd have greeted them with cheerleader-level enthusiasm. It's concert day, band kids! The kids would high-five me, tell me they're nervous or excited or both, list the family members coming to see them perform that night in their very first concert. Later in the morning, we'd play our in-school performance for the younger grades, our dress rehearsal. I think of the cacophony of music stands scraping the stage floor as 50 kids scramble frantically for their seats, the swoosh of the opening curtain, the reveal of the applauding audience, the anticipatory hush the moment before I raise my baton. And then we'd breathe together, inhale the same air, exhale our music, unmasked, unafraid, together. Later that morning, around the time the dress rehearsal would have started, I finish helping my son with his online schoolwork and head downstairs to record my weekly band videos. In the days following the abrupt school closing, our district directed teachers to post asynchronous work for our students. Virtual meets are optional, but I've been scheduling them anyway, and most kids come. We had a meet yesterday, and I was so relieved to see their faces as they popped onto my screen, fresh, healthy, and eager, that my heart burst as I greeted each of them by name. But today, I'm only talking to myself. I start by recording tutorials of the songs I'm assigning this week. It's hard to play to the camera, to project passion into a flat, pixelated package. Watching my reflection, it's like I'm both teacher and student, performer and audience. The last recording is the hardest, my Friday fun video, which is just me playing a song for the kids that they've chosen through suggestions in our Google Classroom. For the last few weeks, the requests have been predictable. Star Wars on trumpet, We Will Rock You on trombone, Ghostbusters on saxophone. Today, a suggestion from one of my fourth grade flute players gives me pause. Play Over the Rainbow, Mrs. Soul, she writes. I pick up my flute press record, and begin to play the song. In my mind's eye, I see Judy Garland walking toward the picket fence, her chin uplifted. Her world is gray, stifled, sunless. She knows that this isn't where she's meant to be. She knows there's a better world out there, one that's out of reach. Tears burn my eyes and thicken my throat, but I can't release them because I have to keep breathing. Inhaling air, exhaling music. I remember all the high school events that cancer took from me. I missed a whole season of marching band, my sophomore homecoming. I mourned those losses for years. My students are too young to be missing so much. This pandemic has cost them joy, pride, togetherness. It has robbed their youth, as cancer once plundered mine. 
It's a struggle to play as I weep. And why do I do it? It's so little, this gift of a song. But I push through, and it is not any kind of strength that drives me, but empathy. An understanding from my inner child to their living childhood. A lament for their loss. I reach the end. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh why can't I? I lower my flute. My tear-filled eyes look back at me through the camera. I miss you, band kids, I say. We'll be together soon. I promise. When this pandemic is over, that's what I'll find over the rainbow. My kids and I making music. Unmasked. Unafraid. Together. Among other things, Leanne Sowell is a social justice educator and an elementary band teacher. Her newsletter, The Joyful Creative, educates on the purpose and practice of daily creativity. She lives with her family in Poughkeepsie, New York. The stories you're hearing today and many others are available in book and ebook form. They are one of dozens of themed collections that we've published so far, and they help fund our mission to promote writers. They're great gifts, they're perfect bedside reading, and you can view all the available titles, including Dog Stories, The Car, Love and Marriage, and many others, under the Shop tab on our website, read650.org. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Duquesse, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. And our show today was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. Veteran journalist Jeremiah Harrigan has spent his professional life as a newspaper reporter telling other people's stories in several daily upstate New York newspapers, The New York Times, Sports Illustrated, The Miami Herald, and The Hartford Courant. For today's edition of Between the Lines, he reads his essay, One Question, Three Answers. Remember Robert De Niro in The King of Comedy? He played a character named Rupert Pupkin a delusional comedian who didn't know he was the unfunniest guy to ever pick up a mic. I'm not a comedian. I'm a writer, a storyteller. But when it comes to telling a story, a joke, an anecdote, doesn't matter what, I can't do it. I am a storytelling Rupert Pupkin. So how have I been able to make a living telling stories? I've got three answers to that question. Answer number one, the old adage, Writing is rewriting has been my salvation since I turned pro almost 50 years ago. I learned back then that writing allows, requires, what speaking can't provide. 
a second chance to get it right, or a third chance, or a fifty-third chance, until all the kinks have been worked out, and I'm satisfied with what all that rewriting has provided. Answer number two. Writing is clarifying. Literary legend has it that the English author E.M. Forster was in a shop when a woman breathlessly buttonholed him to ask him his opinion of some long-forgotten event of the day. Forster, and not the most magnanimous of writers, is said to have turned to the woman and demanded, Madam, how can I know what I think until I see what I say? I recognized the truth of that question the moment I discovered it. I take its meaning literally. If I can see the words that comprise the thoughts in my head on my screen, I can start making sense of the story's shape and meaning. But more important than this, the what of a story, is its why. Why, for example, have I been rewriting this little story for weeks now? Here's what I know. The story's been telling me things about myself, encouraging things, discouraging things, best of all, unexpected things. Writing is about finding and rewriting me. Whitman said it best and most famously, but Jagger told me first, back when, and it stuck. It's the singer, not the song. That's who I'm after when I write. Which brings us to answer number three. Writing is a pleasure. It's a game that's always afoot, to quote another cranky old Englishman. It's harrowing and frustrating, but in the long run, it's fun to wonder at and wander through writing's labyrinthine ways and means, even if you're a hapless literary Rupert Pupkin, is a joy almost, but not quite, beyond words. These days, Jeremiah Harrigan prefers to tell his own story and has done so in Salon.com, Memoir Journal, Talking Writing, and in several anthologies, including Woodstock Revisited. He has a bylined blog at the Huffington Post, and he's written two memoirs. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, and it's the place we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts about the writing life. To share your observations, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find open submission calls for our upcoming shows. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. Thanks today to writers Lynn Edelson, Julie Evans, Leanne Soule, and Jeremiah Harrigan. If you liked what you heard today, please visit our website and consider a donation to support our mission. Please tell your friends about us, and please help spread the word about the spoken word. This episode of Read 650 was part of Carnegie Hall's very first all-digital festival, Voices of Hope, exploring the life-affirming power of music and the arts. With streamed performances that range from orchestral and chamber works to folk and jazz, Voices of Hope features music that inspires change and lifts the human spirit. For complete festival details and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org slash voicesofhope. For more Read 650, you can view hundreds of original performances on our YouTube channel, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or at read650.org. Thanks so much for listening today. 
I'm Ed McCann, and this is REIT 650.